Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 363 and part one of my conversation with University of Tennessee percussion professor and founder of the Neefnorf Festival, Andy Bliss. Let's get right to it. I'm not sure if Andy and I have talked before, but it was great getting to chat with him here on the show. I'd certainly known of him for a long time through his various connections, and it turned out we do know a number of folks in common, many of whom have already been guests on this show. Links to those episodes can be found on the podcast page. Andy's been heavily involved in percussion activities for a while. He's been teaching at the University of Tennessee for many years, and his work, particularly with curriculum design, is notable and will be discussed at length here. Andy's also very active as a performer and supporter of new music. It's through our discussion of that last part that we talk quite a lot in this particular episode, both about Neefnorf, the festival he originated and still hosts, and the nature of entrepreneurship for the 21st century student. Additionally, while not part of this particular conversation, Andy has very recently started a weekly newsletter called Momentum, where he discusses entrepreneurship, creative work, deep work, and applications that allow folks to be their most creative selves. I'll include a link in the show notes so that you can sign up. We spent a long time talking about all of Andy's creative and teaching activities, then we split this up into two parts. So this week on part one, you'll get to hear about Andy getting the job at Tennessee and the program Reset he's done the move to make Tennessee its own school of music within the school, Neefnorf, and entrepreneurship. Next week on part two, you'll get to hear more about Andy's journey and our usual close to the show. So let's get to it. We recorded this conversation over Zoom on August 10th, 2023, and it begins right now. All right. So, Andy, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are right now. Wow, that's a great question to start off. Um, so I'm the director of percussion studies at the University of Tennessee um, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I started there in 2011. And time is flying by. It's crazy that it's 2023. So I oversee all things drum related on campus is what I kind of tell people, you know program has grown and grown the longer I've been there. And actually right now at, at UT, we're in the process of just recently becoming a college of music, which is really, really exciting. It has a lot of administrative and campus related upside, I guess you could say, you know, in terms of just what it, it kind of gets us out of the middle and gets us in a position where top down, we're in a position to make a lot more decisions about how we can help our students. So I direct Ensemble Knox, our graduate percussion group there. It's kind of a higher end, very intensive um, chamber music focused um, sextet. It, sometimes I play with them. Sometimes I conduct. Um, we work with guest artists, collaborate across instrumental genres. Um, so that's a big focus of the program is chamber music. Uh, this will actually be the first year that I'm not in charge of the undergraduate uh, percussion ensemble, the UT percussion ensemble. Uh, my colleague Kevin Zatina is taking that over as things keep growing and we have to kind of, you know, um, 
stay focused on the things that each of us are doing, um, which is super exciting to have him. Kevin joined us last year and he's super talented. He's a great friend, somebody I trust really well. And and then we also have the African diasporic percussion ensemble that I'm in charge of, which kind of envelops our like Afro-Cuban, Afro-Brazilian and steel band uh, content. And I meet with them a couple of times a week. And then outside of those ensembles, I'm, uh, I split up the lessons with Kevin. I teach the graduate group lessons. We could probably unpack that a little bit, um, today. And then also we alternate between what we kind of call friendly, like the, the JV lessons, which are the sophomores and juniors, and then the freshman group lessons. So we alternate back and forth who teaches those like this fall, I'll be with the freshmen which I really enjoy doing when they first get started on campus. And then in the spring, I'll be the sophomores and juniors. Uh, We try to make sure that they get a wide variety of exposure. I'm a huge believer in like just getting as much information as you can and then kind of finding what works for you. And I'm not the, the end all be all when it comes to knowledge. So (laughs) we try to try to figure that out. And then I teach seminars, uh, a year long seminar on, contemporary literature for percussion, and then a year-long seminar on pedagogy. In the fall, I'll be doing pedagogy. We cover like methods and texts. And then in the spring, we cover kind of three levels of curriculum all the way up to like philosophy of like, why do we do what we do and how do we implement these ideas? Solo class, auditions, you know, equipment, digital libraries of inventory. Like I could keep going. There's a ton. It's, It's a huge job but I really love the work and I've got a great team of people that I work with every day, both inside the percussion division and in the college at, at large. Um, it's, it's a hyper creative space. The faculty gets along really, really well. Knoxville has a lot of really great stuff going on. Um, cost of living is low, which is nice. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of my day gig. Uh, the percussion stuff, obviously there's a lot in there that we could unpack, Um, and then outside of that, more on the creative activity side, I suppose I'm the artistic director of NIFNORF, which is a, a nonprofit, um, organization kind of focused on 21st century musicianship, uh, started as an ensemble collective almost 20 years ago now, and has kind of grown to having a big presence, uh, with, um, concerts in the region and our summer festival is one of our biggest programs and more recently we've kind of transitioned to also offering programming online for all the pieces that lead to us playing the concerts in person so the entrepreneurship stuff the technology stuff the the business and productivity and project planning stuff like how how do we actually make these things come to fruition which is something i've learned a lot about through all these endeavors that I just mentioned over, you know, 20 years in my career. So that takes a, a most of the rest of my free time. A lot of things kind of end up falling under that umbrella, but it's been a really cool vehicle to collaborate with people. And, and we've done some things that I'm really, really proud of over the years. Uh, all right. Well, let's do some of the unpacking that you, uh, that you foreshadowed, which was a nice, yeah. thank you for doing my job as well. I appreciate that. And I like sharing the load on that. <laughs> um, well, first thing is actually where, uh, tell me about getting the job at Tennessee, where you were before then and the status of the program when you entered. Maybe I'll back up for just a minute. Uh, 
I was a computer science major when I started college, and I've always been interested in technology. I worked at Best Buy all through high school and stuff and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I just, technology was always interesting to me. As I got into my undergrad, I started this quartet that I played in called Bass 4 Percussion. And it became clear to me that I wanted to be a college percussion professor by about my junior year. So from my, my teacher was Rich Holly, who happened mm-hmm. to be the dean of Northern Illinois um, College of Visual and Performing Arts at the time. And so I had like the perfect mentor to tell me how to get where I wanted to go because he had obviously done that and furthermore had then moved into administration and really understood things. And so I ended up going to Kentucky for my master's and my doctorate working with Jim Campbell, who was also really, really great at that. And we really hit it off. He's still one of my very closest friends and obviously my mentor and I bring all that up to say that there was about 10 years where I basically put my head down and did nothing but try to prepare to get a college position. It was very, there was some time where I kind of was figuring things out, but then once I kind of got focused and exposed to enough things to know that's what I wanted to do, you know, it just became about a lot of practicing, a lot of playing, a lot of writing, a lot of creative work, um, arranging drum corps, tons of chamber music, solo projects, you name it. We could talk more about that if you wanted to, but that kind of leads up to 2011. I had been out at the University of Tennessee at Martin for two years. It's a complete coincidence that they're in the same state and system. It could have been any school. They had nothing to do with each other at all. But my friend Julie Hill helped me it notified me that there was a job opening there for an assistant band director position. And I had a lot of marching band experience. So I moved to Martin, Tennessee and taught out there for two years that came with the uh, stimulus package back in 08, yeah. 09, that job opened for two years and it was explicit up front that it was going to be over after two years. So I knew like I was, I was leaving, you know, And were, wait, so were you done with your doctorate? At this point. I was. Yeah. Okay. I finished my doctorate in 2008. All of it, like totally done. So I went out there for a couple of years. And then in the fall, I tell my students this story all the time. In the fall of 2011, I don't remember the days, but we'll just make it up. So Monday, I was driving from Lexington, Kentucky to Muncie, Indiana to teach at Ball State University and help Sean Vondren, who's now at Northwestern, with the drumline. He was really trying to get the program like moving and um, they were really kind to me to kind of bring me on part-time to help with the drumline. And I was going to be spending the night like on his couch <laughs> coming back on Tuesday to Lexington. Then Eric Willie had hired me as his adjunct at Tennessee tech, which mm-hmm. is like three and a half hours, the other direction from Lexington, no interstate access, <laughs> like driving over mountains I was Mm -hmm. going to get in there on Wednesday and teach into Thursday, come home. And then Friday morning, I was going to go back out to my old job at Center College uh, down in Danville, Kentucky. And then my wife runs a nonprofit music school. And I was going to like teach there on Friday afternoons. That was my schedule for fall of 2011. Mm -hmm. It was going to be so brutal, but I was just kind of trying to stay in it, you know, Mm -hmm. and figure it out. And then I was at band camp at all state night four or whatever. And we're out at Applebee's having, you know, wings and a beer after a long day of teaching. And 
a CBD. And we're, DNA. And, and, and we're I would going to assume we're like early, mid August, right? Yeah, totally. It's like, like right now. Yeah. It, it's like August ago. 20th. Okay. You know, yeah. right. Uh, like semester usually. Exactly. And yeah. um, CBDNA put out a listserv about this job opening at UT late. And he's like, I probably shouldn't, I'll never forget this. He said, I probably shouldn't show you this because I'm going to pay for it. But there's this job. He he knew like I might have a chance at this job because I was somewhat available. And sure enough, it worked out. Um, I went down and interviewed. I played Zanakis in a in a suit and tie in an unair conditioned uh, dorm basement in, in August. <laughs> in August, it was horrible. It was so hot. Oh the sweatiest gosh, performance of Zanakis. Oh, yeah, it was time. like dripping sweat. Oh, it was brutal. But the people were so kind to me. We were really kind of starting at like ground zero. There was single digit students. The program had kind of gone through a transition and. You know, living in Kentucky, I had just seen UT had been on my radar for a long time because it's like a big SEC school with a really recognizable name. I have these really strange ties to UT. Like when I was in grade school, I had a state project in fifth grade and I did Tennessee for my project. And like, there's a couple, you know, I always picked Tennessee when I played like 96 Sega Genesis football because back then the football team was good. You know, it's like right. They had, they had Peyton. Well, they had yeah. Peyton Manning. I put exactly because they they wasn't like officially licensed. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, like somewhere in my childhood, conscious that had registered, even though like I didn't follow college football. So yeah, I was really excited because I knew there was just a ton of growth opportunity. It it felt like all the resources were were there. I just they needed somebody to kind of get in and build the program. So yeah, that was kind of how things went in 2011. It was a one-year interim position. So had the semester started when you already, it had already started and you come in like week two or something? Uh, week five. Week five. Wow. Yeah, I think it was like week four or five. I remember Holy cow. Um, I got done playing. They must have known that they wanted me because they stepped out to call the Dean to say, can we like, just make this offer right now? They made the offer and I was like, I'm in just on the spot. And so I took my, I had, I own my own concert toms and I brought them with me because I didn't know what shape the gear would be in. So I bagged up and boxed up all my gear and I put it in the percussion teacher's office and like lock the door and then walk to my car and drove back to Lexington. Like I left my stuff mm-hmm. there on the day of the audition. And uh, at the time, Gary Souza was the director of bands and he's a really close friend and was a big, big mentor of mine when I was in my first years at UT. And he was like, go home, take all the time you need, get straight with Aaron, my wife. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I said, cool. I think that was like, I don't know like a Tuesday or Wednesday. And I, I said, I'll be back from class on Monday. Yeah. We decided um, for Aaron to stay in Lexington. She had already been there for the last two years with our dog and three cats. We had a rental house. She had her jobs lined up and, you know, I was on a non-permanent two-year thing and then a non-permanent one-year thing at UT. And, it was close enough that we felt like we could drive and visit each other, but there was like three years there where like we were basically seeing each other on the weekends. You know, these are the things, everything we've already talked about so far that I think that 
if there's any up and coming graduate students out there who are hoping to get into higher ed, these are the things that, you know, they don't see the the sacrifice and the commitment and the willing to move and willingness to move. Um, you know, I basically lived away from my wife for three years. I mean, we worked really hard to stay in touch and I would go home on the weekends and all that stuff, but, and thankfully we were like already married and all that was super stable, but, um, yeah, it's, but it that's was, like, uh, you have to deal with sacrifice, you know? Yeah. Well, and that you have two incomes to do, you have two houses or two properties to deal with. Yep. You have, um, who's going to take care of the animals situation. You have, mm-hmm. uh, taxes is probably going to be just bonkers for yep. the next bunch of out years. Of, out of state income, you know, yeah. where, where are you filing? And then yeah. federally, and then what state are you filing in? And yeah. yeah, if if she wants to come visit and leave the dog at home, now we have a kennel bill, which, as you know, when you're young, money is hard to come by, and yeah. So, I I mean, I'm I'm super super grateful for all those opportunities, and but I do think, I mean, I don't think I'm I'm quite certain because I mentor graduate students all the time <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. um, you know, they they don't necessarily have a full picture of like what it actually means to go into higher ed and and. Uh, we get to do, we have a ton of flexibility in the positions that we hold and they're really fantastic, but they do come with a lot of work, you know, and, and a certain amount of commitment um, to getting into and staying in that circuit until you can kind of find the job that is a good fit for you. It's, it's a real, it, it can be really, really tough, you know, for a lot of people. Fall yeah. 2011, it's like week five and I moved to Knoxville. So <laughs> when you get there, you were mentioning some of the ways that you organize classes, which, you know, in terms of um, how you teach and all that stuff. Um, was that stuff you already knew and had worked and were working in, or was this like, and this is actually going to be a very efficient way for me to kind of deal with the situation and the hand I'm dealt with. Yeah. Well, when I got there, things now are a lot different than they were when I got there. You know, when I got there, it was just like install a system immediately And I got some really good advice from especially Jim Campbell and Eric Willie is one of my closest friends. And they basically both just told me like, do the job the way you would want to run the program, you know, because obviously I'm looking at the tenure tech track line that would open the following year. And so I just kind of went all in on like what I believe in program started programming the concerts very differently exposing the students to things in my background that they had not been exposed to before teaching them about the rigors of chamber music and non-conducted communication and installing like lesson grades, you know, students would come in and said, okay, this is fine. And then the next week they'd get, you know, a C or a D in that week's lesson. And, and all of this comes from Jim's mentoring. Like I had a sheet that I like tore off, you know, and they got a copy and I kept a copy and like, thanks to him. I had been prepping that material for a long time. So I was basically ready. All I had to do was like a control F find, change the name, yeah. add the, add the correct course number, you know, and then like right. my handbook and everything was like truly ready to be deployed um, right. the next day, which in this instance was what I needed. So yeah. um, you just had that. You had to adjust everything from UK to UTK, right? Yeah. Like insert the T. In yeah, the exactly. Right. Yeah, it's just right. like a quick, you know, add a logo to the cover and like off we go, you know? Right. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, uh, that year it was good that I was alone. Cause I definitely went into like 
back into grad student mode. You know, it was, I remember walking to my car after midnight, way, way too many times eating lunch and dinner on campus, you know, going home, sleeping for six hours, getting up and coming back. I mean, it was definitely not like a, a, it wasn't a, a, a particularly balanced time in my life. You know, I was pretty focused on this thing and, but I was really enjoying it and the students were great. The ones that were there, they just needed um, attention and they needed help and mentoring. And yeah, we really had a good time. I mean, we were, uh, so there was a new building that was being built and we were in the basement of an old dorm while our new facility was going up. So when I got there, they had already started the construction. So yeah, so we did, you know, weekly private lessons and then we would have solo class and coach um, things. And there was a graduate student there, Liz Soflin. She's doing really well. She lives out in Arizona now. And I'm so grateful for her because that year it was like me and her just trying to figure it out, you know? And like, she, I re, she, she stuck around for a third year to work with me before she left. I, I credit her so much because she really showed me the ropes, you know, and like, this is how we usually do this. And this is where you go for this. And, you know, it was really a, a team effort. But yeah, as we got into the new building years later, you know, how many uh, years later? Uh, two. So okay. 2013, okay. we moved into the Haslam Music Center and it's really, really incredible. I mean, we have unbelievable facilities, eight percussion practice rooms, a rehearsal room that's completely ours, huge garages that hold all of our equipment. And now the technology has been hugely expanded. I think we bought something like $300,000 of technology in the last couple of years through grants and stuff. And, you know, it, it just keeps growing. But a few years ago, I made a shift in our curriculum to um, group applied lessons, which has been really, really interesting. I don't really know how many other people do this, but I don't particularly care. I think it's working for us. I mean, I did it for a couple of reasons. One, after you I mean, you know, after you've taught the same class for seven, eight years in a row, you just keep saying the same thing and the students have the same stumbling points and like, it just wasn't efficient, efficient, but I also was starting to get a little burnt out, you know, it just, here's how you hold sticks and here, you know, and then when you're teaching in one-to-one -one lessons, you can't scale because I would wake up on Monday and I'd have a nine o'clock and a 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And then a 12 o'clock I'd have a meeting and then one o'clock rehearsal. And then another two less. It's like, there was no margin for creative anything because I was permanently in like one-to-one -one context where I didn't have any flexibility. And I actually, I truly believe that's not what was best for the students. When I have that margin to go do creative work, I get inspired and then, or I learn and I bring those ideas and the first place I deposit them is back into the program. And so I had to figure out some way to get off this like kind of merry-go-round with the instruction and the lesson plans. I had to free up some time for myself to like have, I'm a big believer in like deep work. Like I want, I want three hours, you know, or four hours where I can just get lost in a thing, you know, as much as possible. So we moved to these group applied lessons where it's taught more like a theory class, like theory one meets Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 10 o'clock. Students never have a conflict or they're not in the class. 
I kind of believe that applied teachers are, should be given the same sort of uh, opportunity to like set their schedules that way. And also that the students, you know, is always a mess. Like, well, I've got this and this. Okay. Well, I guess we could do our lesson at five o'clock on Monday. It's like that there is like an, an, a, a subconscious hierarchy there where like the lessons become the, the bottom thing and you're always sure. kind of fighting. And ironically, at least in some cases, not in all cases, um, the lessons in the plane are what the students are telling us is like the thing they're the most excited about. That's the thing they want to be doing the most. Yeah. Obviously that's a big generalization. So please don't attack me in the comments, you know, but <laughs> like at Northern Illinois, we did a lot of non-Western and popular styles of music. And I was trying to figure out how to get that more equally into the curriculum. I increasingly noticed students, um, climbing what I call the marimba ladder in mm -hmm. undergrad, where it's just like, they just pour months of their life into learning a solo marimba piece. And as soon as that one's over, they don't quite finish it because they're already so distracted by what they're going, which solo marimba piece they're going to learn next. Right. And that's all well and good. I mean, I love the marimba and I have commissioned and premiered pieces and all that good stuff. I, I don't have a problem with the marimba, but it, it does feel like really out of balance, especially when I think about what my alumni are doing a year after they graduate, five years after they graduate. And I'm just work was wanting to work to like bring that more into balance for the students in real time. So these classes meet uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And on Mondays we do like Western uh, classical percussion, which includes primarily solo keyboard and multi-percussion solo repertoire. And then also the etudes and excerpts around like the core orchestral instruments. And then on Wednesdays, we have a rotation of private lessons that happens uh, with me and the graduate students in 30 minute increments. And then on Fridays we do drum set and non-Western popular styles. And building that framework was like a really great way for, to force me into okay, like now, now things are balanced. So how are we going to make it all fit? So the freshman year is really heavily focused on, I try to not teach instruments. I try to teach like strokes and movements. So, you know, at the beginning we'll teach the full stroke, which on snare drum is pretty straightforward on keyboard might be like double vertical strokes as we're introducing four mallets. And then we'll go over to congas and teach like an open tone, you know, where the hand is rebounding back off of the head. And by kind of cycling through the learning, the students have more time to digest because inevitably they're going to be weak on one of those areas. And we kind of cycle through that through the whole year. And then the sophomore junior class is like a four semester rotation. And uh, the final thing I implemented was the graduate classes are actually in group sessions now too. And that's been super, super cool mm -hmm. because, you know, I might need to talk about they want to know about CVs and resumes. Well, that's definitely a group class topic. Yeah. But then another student is ready to take a grad audition. Like last year, we had a student auditioning at grad schools. So all of us came to the lesson and that single student got coached for the entire hour. But yeah. they got the feedback of that senior got the feedback of my master's students who just went through that process in addition yeah. to my input. Mm -hmm. It's just been basically like a colloquium. They like sign up for times that way 
I mean, you, you know, in grad school, like you don't necessarily want to play every week because you're like right. taking on huge projects and like it yeah. takes time. Yeah. So then we fill those gaps with like professional development and also like peer to peer mentoring. And um, it's totally lit me up again. And like, we're having so much fun and it's been really, really, really cool. And I feel like it's much more flexible. The students get to kind of initiate and drive the tempo a little bit more. And then I step in if I feel like it's getting too laxed or something, but it's, it feels way more professional. Like we can just meet each other at like, how are you feeling this week? And as long as there's not too many down weeks, like life, life happens, you know? So, yeah, yeah that's great. Uh, I'm going to come back to a couple of questions within that in a moment. Uh, you made me think when I was at UNC Greensboro, um, Court McLaren had introduced that to us with um, some point during my doctorate where we had a, like our own, um, masterclass basically for the grad students. And it was great. It was kind of the same, like, you know, we, we, we could be more honest with each other. I think like, you know, like we would be really, really tough on each other because yeah. we all do. Um, and it was kind of that thing where it was, it was just, but it was still a great atmosphere. Like you just learned a ton, just seeing all your colleagues do kind of that stuff. So I definitely, um, see the benefit of that. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about with the, particularly on the undergrad level, you're go so you're teaching kind of this general concept uh, of your you know that's setting everyone up for the future and doing it through that way. So does that mean that the students come in and they're doing um, the same lit, or is it like you you are placing lit where they need to be and they're learning the concepts that way? Yeah, so it's really important to me that there's flexibility in there, like having this map helped me to kind of um, make sure that the ratios were close to where I wanted them. But then I'm a huge believer in like teaching the kid in front of me, you know? Yeah. And um, so the rep is definitely um, not prescribed at least not all of the time in the sophomore junior cycle. That's like a four semester sequence where they hop on the merry ground at different times, right? Like the juniors have already been in there for two semesters but now the incoming freshmen that are going to be sophomores are in there. So nothing is like sequential. It's, it's all kind of like by unit. So mm -hmm. one semester we learned, I mentioned Zanakis earlier, like all of us learned Raybones B. And that was a great like rep case study where everybody could at least learn a page. And then we sort of did a performance of it where each kid played like one page as a sophomore, which I think, I mean, we could talk about that for a long time, but I, there's a lot of parts of that piece that are just not that hard and they kind of get hyped up, but then there are some interpretation things that are super advanced and difficult. And it was really good exposure. Some of them like bit to that. And then they spent the summer, like learning the rest of it. And others were like, I don't really want to do this. I'm into other stuff, which is totally fine. So the, the lesson part is where like the individual curriculum can really come through because as we get into that sophomore junior class, I kind of let them define more what their like end of the term rep and projects are going to be like, it's, it might need to be in a certain bucket, but they get to kind of choose. It loosens up from the freshman to that one, to the grads. And by the time we get to the grads, I actually have kind of like a point system rubric across all spans of creative activity, not just performing. Mm -hmm. And I say, like, I kind of want a certain percentage to be in the performing part because I want you to keep playing and learning and moving your hands and developing your musicianship. But then, like, 
you know, apply to a conference or make a podcast or write an article or, you know, there's just like so many ways to come up with creative work and each kid has different interests. And so, yeah, hundred percent, we're, uh, we're trying to draw that in. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm all about exposure and we want to stretch them. But I also, as I look at my colleagues around the field who have done well, like the things they're doing at a really, really high level, they generally were quite strong at like freshman or sophomore year. So while I love to fill in the gaps for the students and try to help them balance, I also never want to like turn down the heat on the thing they're really good at and usually really passionate at. Like I have a student right now who's a really good composer. He knows way more about Ableton than I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm always asking him for lessons, you know? And yeah, yeah. so we're going to spend a lot of time this last year, his senior year, like doing composition and lessons because it's clear to me that that's where like things are going to land at least partially for him. And um, I want to encourage that. You know. How do you work with your, your other, the other people who are teaching your grad now aside outside the classroom, your grad assistants, how does that, how do you set up a structure so that everyone is successful? I've got the grads in my class and um, they're in my seminar and then they're usually in that top ensemble. So all of that scheduling wise is already kind of like, you know, laid out with no conflicts. Yeah. Um, I do try to get them in front of professor Zatina as well, because he's younger. He just has so much to offer that like uh, one of the students, the student I mentioned was playing the drug band last year and, got a lesson with Kevin and I think he probably learned a lot because Kevin is a top shelf marimba player. So yeah, we, we look for those opportunities like in solo class, you know, we're both there uh, to try to get that crossover feedback. Uh, right now there's not as much crossover because he just got here last year, but with like lessons, but it definitely is something I'd like to kind of keep figuring out as we go. But yeah, we just kind of work together to figure out what each student needs and like we we have a weekly meeting uh me and him and the graduate students where we just meet for an hour every monday morning and talk about there's like 10 buckets from teaching to ensembles to recruiting to marketing stuff and we just kind of go around and see how everything's going we talk about students a lot like how is joey doing in sophomore they're still struggling okay what can we do to help the student like you know would they click better with another person or what 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 do we think is at the root of this and we talk as a team like retention and support of the undergrads is obviously a primary part of the mission so we discuss that openly in a private setting to try to figure that out what about um do, do your grad students have assistantships uh, yeah, most of them do. Uh, not all of them. And in the cases that they don't, um, you know, I try to never close a door to them, but obviously then they're not required to do certain things because they're not being paid. Yeah. At the same time, most of them want to do that that stuff. You know, they want to be in on the meetings. They want to be, uh, they want to get the opportunity to coach an ensemble or teach some lessons. So I usually just try to have a really open conversation with them about what are you looking to, are, are you wanting to coach a piece this semester? And uh, I'm kind of feeling overwhelmed with class. Okay, great. Then we'll, we'll take care of it, you know, and 
a lot of times the students that come that are not on funding get funding their second year because a TA will open. It just happened this week. Uh, mm. I have four grads, two are on TAs. The other, the third one, um, there was like a line that opened, two lines opened this week. I think it's like a student takes it and doesn't show up or something. I'm not exactly sure, <laughs> but right. we, always, we always have lots of students. So, um, and they know we need help. So uh, we're fortunate to, to get that support um, yeah. when it comes available. Awesome. Are you involved with the drum line there? Um, yeah, it's part of my official responsibilities, but over the years it's slowed down. You know, I basically go to the audition camp in the summer yeah. and I don't really even go to that anymore. Uh, it's overseen by um, a graduate TA. We've talked about hiring like a full-time part or a, a part-time staff member or working that into another full-time position. I, I would imagine that hopefully in the next few years now with the college structure would become more possible. But right now I, I technically coordinate. I'm just, again, there to support, you know, I'm not there with them every day. So I try not to like come in too heavy handed, mm -hmm. um, but we've got a really awesome team of directors now. Like there's been some change and everybody is so great. And so um, I go, I try to go to practice two or three times a season and just, I think it matters. Like I remember when I was out there playing and my teacher would show up, you don't even have to do anything, you know, they just see you there. And I think it's like, it's, um, that nonverbal communication, you know, that you care and it, it definitely keeps me grounded. Like you see how hard they're working out there. And I'm obviously came from a drum corps and drumline background and it keeps, it helps me remember like they're tired. You know, like yeah. when they could, you know, maybe when they come in or the next day, like it, it's good to run with the students as often as you can to see what their reality is. Yeah. Because I think as teachers, we can get into our bubble and have demands that don't always fully consider everything they're dealing with or trying to juggle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Explain again why, what the transition was for the school of music and why that matters or what's different now. UT is a college of music now as of July 1st. And, um, and it's just been a department of in, like within the fine arts or something like that. Yeah. So we used to be the school of music, which okay. was inside of the college of arts and sciences, which had mm -hmm. like 26 uh, units. Mm -hmm. So fine arts, but also like all the humanities and, there was one dean with a bunch of associate deans. She was happened to be like a chemistry professor. And, you know, I mean, just like if I became a dean and I was overseeing chemistry or psychology, I mean, I would do my best to understand. But, you know, if you haven't walked that road for 15 years, it's, it's hard, you know. So yeah. our director is really wonderful. But at some level, there's like a middle management situation, you know, where we're just not as nimble to make changes. Like I think he saw a, a lot of, I mean, he, he did, has done so many great things for the, the school over the last 10 years. He got here the same year I did. Mm -hmm. We're very close. You know, there, I, I, I think he would say if he was here, there are just certain things he wanted to take action on that he just couldn't because he's not in charge of certain decisions. Uh, what this means for us now is also when you become a college 
I mean, I have mixed emotions about like a administrative bloat bloating, you know, but we definitely like doubled the size of our administration this summer. That just means that a lot of people can do their job correctly because hopefully they can just focus on that job. Mm-hmm. So like now we have a director of development. We didn't have that before. That was the director. And now we have an associate dean for academic stuff. So like, like, you know, my annual review, I won't do that with the director anymore. I'll do that with this associate dean. And if I'm the director, that just like frees me up to like do some other things to try to make the school better, you know, or the college better. So there's a bundle. We got a new director of like technology. Uh, We have a director of like enrollment, our own associate Dean for diversity, equity, inclusion, which all these things are things that are really important to us. And that as the faculty, we're talking about them all the time. Like we want to keep pushing with technology. We want to have better representation in a lot of different ways through our school. This stuff matters to us a lot. We're trying really hard, but you know, it's a slow, big machine. And so having staff um, in those positions, I think is just going to make the school a lot more nimble and a lot more like agile to hopefully do the things that we know are what's best for the student body, you know? Um, Yeah. Which is exciting. So it, it just kind of fell in our lap things just keep getting better at UT. I'm like permanently dumbfounded at like how fortunate we are. We had the building and then, you know, in the height of COVID when so many things were bad, we are like getting this grant funding to get all this like equipment and technology, which has helped our students a ton. And now like we're a college and it just, I'm so fortunate to work there. It's such a great school. And um, I say this all the time, but the thing I love the most about my job is, there's just really not been anything I've wanted to do that I haven't been able to figure out. Like the facilities are there, the equipment's there, people stay out of my way. Like I don't have to like, I mean that in the best way possible, you know, but like, I don't, I don't have to like check in with anybody. It's like, if we know that this is a great thing to do, then we're just going to do it. So. All right. Well, let's talk about Neef North. Uh, Sure. Sure. The beginnings where it began, where it's located, uh, all of those items. Neefdorf started in 2005 during my master's degree with my colleague, Carrie O'Brien, who's still one of my closest friends. Uh, we met in undergrad and she was going into musicology and I was going into performance and we kind of discovered Steve Reich's music and realized like this guy's in like the history books. And obviously that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But at the time it was like really foreign to us that something we would be studying in music theory or music history would come up and have percussion. Right. Um, you know, it's just nothing but piano solos, like yeah. and string quartets, like until the end of the earth. And, and, and so, and yeah, just forever. Like that's yeah. all the music that was Coral ever written. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, speaking of like representation mattering, you know, it's just like it, changed our life when we got to contemporary music history and all of a sudden there was a piece that had percussion in it and it and Carrie was really into the scholarship and I was really into the performance and like we were trying to find ways to team up on this so I had to do a bunch of recitals for my graduate work and so we ended up programming that and David Lang and Julia Wolf and like you know all these different things Pauline Oliveras and it just kind of opened our eyes to like the larger world of music first 
that happen to use percussion second, as opposed to the other way around, which is often what circulates inside of percussion studios, because, you know, they, they haven't been exposed to the broader musical world. They're just kind of finding pieces for their instruments, which mm -hmm. obviously are a lot of those are kind of written by us for a lot of different teaching reasons and they're important yeah. for what they are, but it just opened our eyes to a bigger world, I guess. Mm -hmm. So we started playing together and did some touring and fast forward a bit in 2011, I was in residence at some different universities and I met a student at each school. Both were like smaller schools where the, there was a kid after my clinic or talk or whatever that was like, I've been looking at this Morton Feldman piece, King of Denmark. Do, can you help me with this? You know, and it was clear that nobody around was really engaging with that, you know? And um, yeah. I said, sure. So we had like an extra coffee or whatever and talked about it. And then two weeks later, a similar conversation happens where a student maybe was trying to do a piece of technology or something. And I thought it would be so cool if we could like get all these individual kids together in the summer, like what would that look like? So I was out at Martin at the time and I, I, uh, just had, I had just gone to the Banff center, um, mm -hmm. for roots and rhizomes in 2009. And I think that was a big influence too. Mark Applebaum and John Luther Adams were there. Steve Schick ran that program. I Yoon Huang, so a couple others. And, um, long story short, I ended up launching the Neefnorf summer festival, um, I say this every time as it should be, but big thank you to Omar Carmenatis at Furman. Mm -hmm. I just, I will never forget the day I called him and just pitched this thing and said, this is what I want to do, but I need a place to do it. Could we do it at Furman? And he said, sure. So, you weren't at, you weren't at UTK yet. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the first four summers were at Furman and we had such a great time there. So it started as a percussion festival only with like Christopher Adler as the guest composer. And uh, the second year, Chris came on as like faculty and we invited some composers. And then the next year we brought in like cello and piano. And then we just kind of blew the doors off after that and said like, let's truly do the mixed chamber thing because that's when we can, you know, I always say it's like percussion at the nucleus of everything we do, but it's definitely become like an all instrumental uh, affair. And so, um, this summer we just finished our 12th summer festival in person. And, and it's where, an, is it still in, uh, okay. Yeah. So it's at UT. It moved, moved to Knoxville in 2015. There's an amazing community that's been by far the biggest takeaway for, for me was it started as like, let's program some music. So these students can like play this stuff that they might not get to play during the year. Yeah. Um, but over time, what's become clear to me is like the Neefnorf community has become huge. I mean, it's, we have fellows coming from overseas, all corners of the U S every major school you can think of, um, tons of composers, tons of performers, improvisers. We have a music technology track. We have a composer performer track, and we, we just continue to try to like push the boundaries of what, 21st century musicianship is supposed to look like and allow these students to like question their musical identity in terms of like, well, I've always been over here, but what, what happens if I get pulled over here and I have to improvise for the first time, or I, I have to write the music. Like, how does that change the way that I interface as an interpreter um, with the music that I play? And um, 
we have an incredible faculty and staff and team that are artists in their own right, like our production director and our technology director are people whose vision I really admire and trust in terms of like what a concert experience can be like from lighting to staging to just the whole atmosphere around it. And so we work really, really hard to like elevate the experience for everybody involved when they're there. And the the festival has become a huge undertaking. And then I guess like the third act, if you will, has been the last couple of years, I've just noticed that these fellows that come to the festival are brilliant. I mean, they're coming from subjectively some of the best institutions in the country and abroad. They play their butts off. Like they're super prepared. They're really kind, but there's like this, there's missing piece about, so what, who cares? Like, what do I do with this? And how do I, how do I get these things out into the world? How do I get the grant writing? How do I record with what technology do I need? How do I, I have a project idea, but I don't know how to take the first step. Uh, Project management, productivity, you know, mental health around overwhelm and like, you know, all these different pieces that come into being a musician. And so we've started to offer some um, like workshops and trainings and really cohorts and like communities about uh, moving through our creative work together and having a bit of um, accountability. And so this fall, we're going to be rolling out like what is the result of like three years of research and discussions and um, projects around all of that, which I'm super, super excited about. There's some really, really big things coming in that direction that have been kind of, as I said, just uh, the result of several years of research and just one-to-one interactions I've had with all these fellows. And what I'm noticing and what our team is noticing, they they kind of need to sew that whole um, picture together. So I know you do some entrepreneurship stuff. I mean, I'd love to hear if you have like thoughts about that, you know, what what some of the things are that you see at work you know, with our students um, on that side of the fence. Well, I, I mean, it, it's interesting when you're talking all about all the things that Neefnorf does. In my head, I'm like, I should have Andy come to my class because I teach <laughs> a, um, I teach a career development. Our we we have a arts entrepreneurship certificate at Mizzou, and I, which I now um, am the kind of administrator for, mm-hmm. and what um, the class that I teach is career development for musicians. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I, we really stress in the class is relationships and, yeah. and I think students don't realize that they have a lot of support that they have not tapped into. And it's, and sometimes you just have to think, okay, who, uh, who are your friend's parents you grew up with? Like, and and if you start thinking about that, about it that way, you, you realize you're like, Wait, I, my, my friend, his mom like runs, uh, has some connection that mm-hmm. I just didn't even consider asking. Maybe it's weird to ask. And I'm like, no, well, we'll figure out, I'll show you how to ask. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there's, a <laughs> we'll way, there. there's a way to ask that's, that's like professional, yeah. but still relates, but still makes use of that relationship. I mean, there's a, there's, it's more, there's more to it than that, but that's like, that's one way where you just have to think. Oh, actually, there is a, a community that I have that I just have to either organize or tap into. And then that can lead to 
like one other aspect that I know you, I'm sure you think about, particularly with you programming same for programming so much new music, is you know where can I play this? Yeah. And a lot of times, you just have to go. Where is their music? Yeah. And and you start realizing that you don't think about that. You're like you might start with like auditoriums, but then you're just like, well, that restaurant has play stuff, or that church has has like a an arts program or or this there's a um you know there there's an play a home there's a retirement community that loves having live content like and you just start once you start throwing that around everyone's like oh like that so that's some of what where, where my head goes with that yeah 100 percent. i mean that's exactly i think a lot about um you know at the university level too like we all take think our ensembles are like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we work so hard on the programming and the repertoire and we push and push and push. And we try to really get them playing so well. And then we show up on a Thursday night and play it to a hall that sometimes is not all that full. And mm-hmm. like, there's a big question in my mind about relevance, you know, and, and just where, what you just said, it's like, you know, I've been asking myself for years, like what would happen what would a class or an ensemble at, you know, I'm talking about my day job sure. look like if we ne- didn't do what I call like a, a rep repertoire concert, you know, where we get up on stage and play six pieces, like what, yeah. what would a season look like where we didn't ever do that? Not at all. Or maybe we did it one time over a nine month double semester season, you know, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the time, we go to the arts festival downtown and we go out to the grade school and we go to the high schools and we go to the retirement community and we play at the big ears festival, or we go on tour or we record an album on for YouTube or, or, you know, or whatever. And I think there's so much entrepreneurship that is taught through that, where you can get the students involved in the process of what it means to make music. And in higher ed, we are so guilty of like, well, we have everything we need here. I have the rehearsal space. I have the chairs. I have the stands. I have the equipment. I have the music library. I have a performance hall right down the hall. You know, a lot of people don't like to come to campus and try to park for whatever reason. I mean, often because parking's hard. And I just think it's so important to like get out and make a difference and actually find a way to connect this work to uh, the general public. And so, yeah, like we'll try to go play a concert, not even where there's music, but just where there's people like, yeah you know, you're stumbling a little bit into like self-presenting and that's a huge topic for me. Like I have so much music I want to program and play. Like it never ends. It's my favorite thing to do, you know, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but you know, sometimes I think it's better to go, where can we find 300 people? Great. Mm-hmm. Now, how could we make some music in that space where those people are, as opposed to we're going to play the Grise Sextet and we're going to spend nine months learning this thing. And boy, do I hope some people show up when it's all ready to go, you know? Yeah. Um, I like the, I like the, the kind of the, the framing there yeah. uh, because you, you can, you know, it's interesting if you think about where's there a lot of people and then how do you make that work? One of the, the things that I think is really critical is that's a setting where if you're in front of that many people, you all, you like the music part is, is honestly secondary to you being a presenter. Yeah. Like, can you talk to this crowd? Can you get them interested? Yeah. Can you be enthusiastic so that 
they will actually want to hear the piece that you're, even if it's like 15 minutes of just lines mm-hmm. <laughs> of music. Yeah. Okay, but you know what? Here's the challenge. Make it, like present it so that it's interesting so that the pre- people who are listening are actually going to be interested in, in what you're going to play and not just go, well, they're going to think we're pretty awesome because we are pretty awesome. Like, yeah. Nobody cares how hard it is, you know? And yes. I, I say that to the <laughs> Niefnerf crew all the time. Like, you know, there's a stigma around contemporary music. People get afraid of it. So it's all the more reason, first of all, that you have to be well-prepared and play it very well. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, like some of the music might already be a little bit challenging. But I also tell them, like, I have never heard a bad performance of a piece where the interpreter and the performer was informed, knowledgeable, and enthusiastic about what they were doing. Because like you just said, if, if you can share why you're excited about this music you're playing, how it relates to your own story, which is one of the huge votes for playing contemporary music for me is like, let's be relevant in our society right now and collaborate as opposed to, you know, the alternative. So like maybe the composer's there, or maybe they're, someone you knew and you can talk about that story and then obviously read the room and figure out how deep or how shallow read the room certain parts of the <laughs> story read then, the room <laughs> yeah and then play the piece and hopefully yeah. now, now the listener has some context for like what why you love it so much you know yeah. instead of expecting them to kind of read your mind and just right. know all of that up front that's just not practical yes so yeah the the Another thing that happens in this in this class is we talk about story a lot mm-hmm. and, and how important it is to to con- that if you can whatever you're playing if you can connect it to your own personal journey in some way yeah. uh, that will be better than not doing that yeah um, bec- again because it's you know you always think about I don't know if you think about this Andy but it's like what are the best you know, when you see someone, when you listen to someone talk, whoever it is, what's usually the best part of whatever they're talking about? It's usually when they go, back in 1971, when I was a sophomore in high school, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they, because they're they're bringing in a personal story and you're like, okay, now I'm paying attention. Right, right. Like, I've Definitely. always felt like that's the, that's the connector. Yeah, that's where we build context and we thread stories together to give us our own spin on whatever it is we're interpreting, you know? I mean... Yeah. I for years wanted to like tour around and put together a book about like unifying the what did I have the title was like unifying an oral tradition, which was just going to be composer and performer interviews about like repertoire and how it came to life. And because there are so many parts of art and music that we hold on these pedestals. And what I've learned in my career is, um, even now in real time, some of the things that gets put on a pedestal, I think is truly fantastic. And other things that gets put on a pedestal or wins an award or whatever, I'm like, I don't really care for that. Obviously it's subjective, but it, I think there's a lesson there to be learned about then the story that we're being told from what happened before us, you know, and yet another reason I try to get my students to engage in real time with what's happening in the music world, because I think it makes them such stronger interpreters of the music that they're interpreting from, from the past. And, 
and they can, as you said, start to weave in their own story and feel more freedom with the score to say, well, this piece has been recorded 10 times. I'm terrified, but I really like to work in this mode or in this context. And I think if I brought that to this piece, I would have a version that's truly mine and uniquely my own. And depending on the piece and depending on the decision, I might advise them that that's a little inbounds, a little out of bounds, but like we have to bring creativity. This has been my mantra over the last couple of years is the performance student in, in music. You know, when, when I go across the street to the visual arts studio, they start with a camera and a lens and like, that's where their journey begins or a blank piece of paper and a pencil or a, a, a pound of clay and an idea. Right. And like yeah. in composition, I think that parallels pretty well, but in performance, especially the way our music schools are set up nationally and probably abroad in most cases, like we start with being chained to the interpretation of somebody else's creative idea. And I just think for the performer, then like they start getting more and more concrete and rigid in what's allowed, how they have to do things. Their own creative voice can't come through, which is why I really try to start with like this idea of composer, performer, improviser from the beginning. Like you have, you as a performer have a a creative part to this process and, and yes, the best interpreters are going to, do their homework and nail down the score and do a great job. And I've made a career out of doing that, but um, I'm trying really hard to also instill in my students that um, there's this other component where like they can feel free to bring their own voice to their work and find a healthier balance uh, for when they're in the context of realizing somebody else's idea. And when they're in the context of kind of following their heart and listening deep to like what that thing is that they've been thinking about for three years, but they kind of don't know how to act on it. And like, how do we get that thing out? And how do we, how do we give some momentum and how do we give some support to the student to like, see that thing through, you know, which might turn into a 300 plus episode podcast like you, or it might turn into a, a book or it might turn into a new composition or, but there's like really awesome ideas out there that I think a lot of students don't really know like, oh, well, I just play clarinet. Like, and they identify so strongly that way. Like mm-hmm. in, in that box where all they're allowed to do is play the right notes and rhythms. And if they don't, they're wrong. And it just is such a restrictive mental space to be in. And it's nobody's fault. It's just the system, you know, that's, that I'm trying to kind of open that up for sure. Fantastic points. And you were also leading me to think about when you talk about kind of interpret other person's interpretations. I know that you probably deal with students all the time who have watched something on YouTube and have decided that whatever version that they've attached themselves to is the version, period, end of sentence, I will recreate that. Right. And if I don't, it's a failure. Yes. Yeah. Where that especially is dangerous is when you're playing, when students choose music that's being performed by the composer. In other words, the, the performer is the composer. They right. wrote the piece and then they perform it. That We have a lot of those individuals in our field who are yeah. unbelievably talented. And But I, I also believe they're uniquely 
fantastic artists, those individuals, and they, they like everyone else can do certain things really, really well that maybe other people just aren't as strong at. And so uh, the students will be trying to recreate, like you said, something from a video. And I'm like, you're, you're never going to get there because like, I, I, I don't talk quite that, um, quite that, uh, <laughs> I guess, rigorously, you know, like, but it will be tough to get there because this, like this person wrote this, you know, it came, right. it's their idea. It, it, it they memorize their skill sets. Yeah. It's their skill sets. Right. Yeah. And so where if, if we would give them the freedom or more importantly, the discipline to, to follow their own skill sets, then like now they have their own unique voice, you know? And yeah. I think about what promoters want to book, you know, they don't, they don't really book ensembles. Right. They book projects that are really easy to market that are played by top shelf ensembles, mm -hmm. you know, but like if a, that most promoters or festivals or, you know, album labels or whatever are not going to be as excited about a repertoire concert of six random eight minute pieces that have nothing to do with each other. Right. But if you say, we have a brand new evening length work. That's a collaboration between this really interesting composer and this really interesting videographer. And here's why it makes sense. And here's how it threads together. And here's what we have put into this project to yeah. make it come to life. Like I want, I want to go see that. And you don't even have to fill in the names, you know, it's trying to find that balance between ob obviously the copying is the, the best way to learn, you know, like we do want to teach the students to try to reach excellence by mirroring, but we also then have to open up this other lane for them where they are starting to find, feel the freedom to borrow their favorite things, but then like figure out how to bring their own, you know, um, flavor to, to stuff. I, I use the analogy of cooking a lot. I'm not a great cook, but you know, they have entire competitions in different parts of the country for like barbecue. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like hundreds and hundreds of people cooking the exact same thing. Certain parameters have to be the same, which might be the score, but there's a lot you can do, you know, and yeah. still, still stay true to that recipe. And yeah. Just don't get any barbecue sauce on the iPad is all. That's right. Yeah. And then we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Just please don't. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, totally, man. Totally. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I look forward to the uh, Andy Bliss and the Andy Bliss performers featuring Andy Bliss and Andy Bliss's music. And yeah, answers. exactly. Yeah. 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 Just not my thing. You know, it's like, let's, let's mix it up and, yeah. and, you know, let everybody's voices mix together to see, see what happens, you know, which is why I've enjoyed, enjoyed contemporary music so much. I mean, it's, uh, opened up my palate a long time ago about just what my ears accept and what they don't. And then, but yeah. then also just like, I would much rather be challenged than hear like the, the same stuff that's like right up the middle all the time. And, and, and if I have opinion about it, great. Like if, if, if a concert challenges me to, to form a, a have a reaction, like that's really all I'm looking for, you know, and yeah. the subjective part, I, I left good and bad a long time ago, you know, like <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. So everybody's going to like different stuff.
we'll have part two with Andy Bliss next week. So stay tuned for that. This week's rave was this past Mizzou football weekend for many reasons. We'll start with the game itself. Mizzou is playing number 15 ranked Kansas State, a rival for many, many years when both schools were in the Big 12. And it turns out our football team just had not looked all that great in its previous two games, though they were both wins against mid-major competition. Mizzou faithful had high hopes for the game, but we were also well aware we were playing a much better opponent than we had the previous two weeks. And we managed to stay with and around K-State for much of the game, pulling out some major clutch plays and big-time offense, particularly in the air. And then our kicker, Harrison Mevis, won the game at the buzzer with an SEC record 61-yard field goal that barely, and I mean barely, crossed the upright. And pandemonium ensued. It was the first time students stormed the field at Mizzou in nine years, and it felt like a good cause. Many students tried and generally, thankfully, listened to myself and other staff and, and told them, these students going crazy, to not go through the band to get to the field, to storm the field, but to take the stairs. There are plenty of stairs. They ended up more or less listening to us, so that was great. The other item going on for the weekend was that Marching Mizzou was celebrating its 65th anniversary this year, where folks of all genders, and more specifically in this case women, were allowed to march in the band. The Golden Girls, our dance team, were also being celebrated at this halftime for their honor of making it into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame this year, and many of their alums returned for that event also. But the big guest star was Phyllis P.J. Blankenbaker, one of the first women to take the field for that very first Marching Mizzou season in 1958, and she marched all of her years at Mizzou, when all genders were allowed to march. She's currently in her 80s, lives in Oregon, though she still has a lot of family in Iowa, and returned for the first time to Mizzou in a long time. And we gave her the full treatment. We hosted a talk with PJ prior to our Friday band practice. She attended all band practices Friday and Saturday, walked in with the band prior to the game, and was on the field for both pregame and halftime. And she was honored in halftime for being part of that first class. I ended up being her in-game liaison, and it was so much fun getting to chat with her and hear about her story, and all of the stories about being at Mizzou back in those days. The one that always sticks with me is that you'll be shocked, shocked, to learn that back in the 1950s and early 60s, Mizzou, and probably lots of other institutions of Ironhead, had all sorts of restrictions on women's clothing, activities, goings-on, etc., none of which ever applied to the men back then. In all... It was a truly great weekend of marching with zoo and football. And I should mention the halftime show honoring lots of women in pop music went really well. The alums returned in high numbers and we had a great football game with an incredible finish. And that's that. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. 
The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Andy Bliss. Until then.